Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition... Explore the virtual observatory and watch your salt. But first up, here's the news. Asthma for brain rejuvenation. Taking a prescription asthma medication has reduced age-related brain inflammation, stimulated the growth of new brain cells and strengthened the blood-brain barrier. In elderly rats. A team at the Paracelsus Medical University in Austria tried using the children's asthma drug Montelukast because it has anti-inflammatory effects on the lungs, and they wondered if it might also have anti-inflammatory effects in the brain. It worked way better than they ever hoped for. When brains start to suffer from aging, they experience the symptoms of inflammation, in particular problems with the immune cells of the brain, the microglia, less dense connections between brain cells, and a thinner blood-brain barrier, protection against toxins and infections, and lower levels of new neurons forming. Given the shortage of young blood for rejuvenation, it would be great to have a drug that reversed all of these effects. Asthma is an inflammatory illness commonly triggered by exposure to allergens, air pollution, and by exercise, but also triggered by many other things. Inflammatory molecules, called leukotriens, are one of several substances which are released by mast cells during an asthma attack, and it's leukotriens which are primarily responsible for the constriction of the bronchial tubes that chokes people during an acute asthma attack. Montelukast was developed as a leukotrien receptor antagonist to treat asthma patients. The rats were given Montelukast every day for six weeks, at the end of which the researchers found the drug had reversed age-related brain inflammation and encouraged the creation of new brain cells in the old rats. In the first set of experiments, the researchers used two groups of rats, one aged 20 months or so, the elderly, equivalent to 65 to 75-year-old humans, and the other aged four months, equivalent to 17-year-old humans. The elderly rats did not suffer rat dementia, but did suffer the same decline in their mental abilities that humans experience as they suffer ageing. Before giving the rats the drug, the researchers recorded how long it took the rats to find a hidden platform over five consecutive training days in a Morris water maze test. 
On day five, the old rats taking the drug performed as well as the young rats, whereas the old rats without the treatment performed very poorly. The young rats given the drug showed no improvement, so it's not a general smart drug. The researchers conclude that considering the various beneficial effects of Montelukast on central nervous system functions in different animal models, this illustrates the leukotriene receptors and their underlying signaling mechanisms might contribute to the development of many neurological problems, and that Montelukast, by targeting these mechanisms, might be able to modulate and to improve a number of neurological functions in various central nervous system diseases. The drug is good. The anti-asthma drug reduces the inflammation caused by leukotrienes in the elderly brain, allowing it to work almost as well as the younger brain. Now, it's unlikely that if you're old enough to be suffering age-related brain inflammation, that you are being prescribed Montelukast, because it's commonly prescribed for children. It's prescribed for children because it's been found to be very effective in children to help asthma, but not very effective in adults. The team are planning a clinical trial with Montelukast in people suffering dementia, but it's a cheap generic drug that's no longer restricted by patent, so it's hard for a venture capitalist to make a profit on their investment when anyone can make the drug. They may need to get funding from a non-profit foundation instead, perhaps the Methuselah Foundation? There's always the chance that other already approved anti-inflammatory asthma medications will also rejuvenate the brain if only they can be tested. I personally suffered brain inflammation from my ciguatera fish poisoning 13 years ago, and the most dramatic improvement to my memory and concentration came with taking daily doses of Simbacort, a combination anti-inflammatory asthma inhaler containing the drugs budesonide and fomoterol. So perhaps if you have asthma and you've started suffering from age-related brain inflammation, then your asthma inhaler could be keeping your brain young. The paper was published in Nature Communications and was titled Structural and Functional Rejuvenation of the Aged Brain by an Approved Anti-Asthmatic Drug. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. I dropped in on the annual Astronomical Data Analysis Software and Systems Conference to speak with some data astronomers. Thanks to Helen Sims, who helped me organise the interviews. Yeshe Fenner is from Astronomy Australia Limited, and she works on the All Sky Virtual Observatory Project. I began by asking her, what is the All Sky Virtual Observatory Project? So the All Sky Virtual Observatory Project, it's an Australian-based virtual observatory project that links in with what's known as the International Virtual Observatory, which is an incredible network of distributed data sets all around the world that is essentially connected or glued together by conforming to a certain set of data standards and rules and protocols for how you can access that data. So the astronomy community is very well coordinated and highly collaborative, so there's a a history of decades of working on agreeing what these data 
and data access service standards should be. And so for many types of data, those standards are very mature. So if you follow those rules, when you build your own virtual observatory, and then you register that the service and the data with the virtual observatory register, you immediately plug into this global network of data sets, which is very exciting because it means you no longer um, are working sort of in isolation. You can make it really easy for whatever data you're trying to host and support to make that as reusable by the entire international community. And so our project, it's Australian-based, but it fits into that broader collection of data sets. So we're very lucky to work in that kind of model where astronomy is so open with sharing software and data compared to lots of other disciplines. A virtual observatory obviously sits on a computer Mm. and so does that mean you can find out things that have already been observed by looking as if you were making the observations yourself? Yeah it's very much like that. It's really exciting because the whole I guess model or paradigm for the way that astronomers do research these days it's changed a lot. It used to be the case that Astronomers would go out to a telescope, they'd take observations, you know, they'd point at objects of interest, galaxy stars, they'd gather that data, take it back to their offices, they'd analyse it on their desktop machines, they might share it with their team members and their colleagues, and they might publish a paper on it, and then they might never use that data again. But the paradigm's shifting to one where we've got these big next-generation telescopes that collect just masses of hundreds of millions of gigabytes of data and they run observing programs designed to meet as broad a possible science needs of the entire community and then to actually get that data out into the hands of the researchers so we can get as much science and discovery out of the data as possible. So that's kind of the transition at the moment to a very different way of operating to the point where a lot of astronomers could be considered data scientists or astroinformaticians rather than a classic observer. So with our project, All Sky Virtual Observatory, we're trying to support this new paradigm for the way that astronomers do their business, which is really quite different. With the Virtual Observatory, they can essentially pull up data as if they've measured it or observed it themselves on a telescope, but they can do it from anywhere in the world, accessing these this distributed network of data sets. So it's a really exciting way to do science now from you without having to leave your office. That means that the astronomers have got access to data from all these instruments, all these super expensive instruments that they'd otherwise have to pay for and wait to get observation time on and they can access it all from their office. That's it and it's it's really the next step to making the next lot of scientific discoveries and breakthroughs because now you can bring together and combine and compare data sets across the wavelength range from all these different telescopes. So a lot of the information has been extracted from individual telescope observations already. So there's a lot of new stuff that you can discover by bringing that together. Different wavelength ranges probe different sorts of physical processes and different structures. So bringing that together allows you to get new insights, but also to um, compare the observations with theoretical data, which is also available through the Virtual Observatory. And that bringing together of multi-wavelength data sets and theory is, was a big motivation for us building the All Sky Virtual Observatory, which has 
you could say at its centre, it's got a theory node, which allows you to build mock universes, looking at different types of assumptions about cosmology and dark energy and dark matter and the way that stars and galaxies evolve. And then taking those simulations and mapping them onto the observer's plane, and specifically to map it onto how it would look through individual telescopes or surveys. So that's kind of the heart of our virtual observatory. And then we're building up a collection of observational data hubs, starting with optical images and then going to other sorts of optical, infrared and even UV data, both images and spectral data, and ultimately bringing in radio data from next generation square kilometre array pathfinders. So we're trying to build up these data hubs and when we do that, the idea is that the theory node will be able to simulate what the universe should look like through those telescopes. But again, at all times, we're trying to link in with the International Virtual Observatory and that's absolutely critical um, to the project being successful and, and you know, getting as many researchers using it as possible. So astronomers will be able to find the area or object of interest and then look through the data from lots of different types of telescopes. And then if they're still not sure, or if they want to compare, they can look at what the theory predicts should be there and get a better understanding. That's it, exactly. And it's also useful to even use the theory models to predict what future telescopes will see. It actually allows you to design your observational campaign to be as efficient as possible to answer the specific science questions that you're wanting to look at. And, and already our theory node was used to do that. It was used to predict um, what a new radio telescope would see so that they could make sure that they were running an observing campaign that would you know, get the number of galaxies and new galaxy detections that they need to answer the science questions. Have there been any discoveries made using the virtual observatory? And there's been, I wouldn't say major discoveries, but there's been some really interesting papers and science insights looking at the way that galaxies cluster and what kind of galaxy formation models can explain observations for the distribution of galaxies. There's been, I think, in the last year or two, six publications coming out of that, but that, that will increase as we bring in more observational data into the virtual observatory. But what we can already see from some of the early data from the um, telescopes that were sort of folding into the virtual observatory, there have been discoveries already made with preliminary data. So our first data set is coming from the SkyMapper telescope, which is built and operated by the Australian National University. And it's just started ramping up a five-year observational campaign, which will ultimately produce the most detailed sensitive map of the entire southern sky at optical wavelengths. So that's going to be obviously a very valuable resource for years to come. And even with the early data from SkyMapper telescope, they discovered the most metal poor star known to date and by a significant margin with really interesting abundance patterns for chemical elements. And also with SkyMapper data already they've discovered a dozen or so new supernova which is part of an experiment to look at how and why the universe is uh, expanding at an ever-increasing rate so trying to get some insight into dark energy in the universe. So there's already signs of of, I guess hints of the types of discovery that will become really easy to make for all researchers 
once that data is in the virtual observatory and accessible to everyone around the globe rather than just to the individual team members, which is what it's been to date. So we're getting these exciting glimpses of the potential and the scientific potential of that data and that's just based on the early short survey observations. So it's exciting. Yeshe Fenner, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Ian. That was Yeshe Fenner from Astronomy Australia Limited talking about the All Sky Virtual Observatory Project. More astronomy data interviews to come. And now Jonathan Coulton with Nemeses. It's an amazing smile Even the suit has teeth Everything flash and guile With nothing underneath Except a small black heart That no one sees but me I've been watching I can see you start to wonder Could it be that you need me To keep you out To run you faster Promise me you'll let me be the one The worst of all your enemies Pretending you're a friend to me Say that we'll be nemeses Being a brilliant man Going to great expense Devising a master plan doesn't make much sense unless you find the one you're destined to destroy. Now that you're here, I don't seem that crazy, do I? Could it be that you need me to keep you out, to run you faster? Promise me you'll let me be the one, the worst of all your enemies, pretending you're a friend to me. Say that we'll be nemeses Ah oh, yes, my old friend You are a master of this game The hidden blade When you pretend That you don't even know my name Well played Sometimes it's hard to tell If you even notice me Maybe it's just as well It's better you don't see The way I'm running Just to keep your back in view In your shadow Waiting for the perfect moment Could it be that you need me To keep you out To run you faster Promise me you'll let me be the one The worst of all your enemies Pretending you're a friend to me Say that we'll be nemesis That was Jonathan Coulton's Nemesis. Find more of Jonathan Coulton at jonathancoulton.com. And now get your sparklers ready. It's Bright Spark time again. Sarah Brooker and Neil Byrne run the science communications company Science in Public. 
They created the Fresh Science National Competition to encourage early career scientists to find the story in their science and get it out to the public. The Bright Spark Challenge is for these scientists to explain their research in the time it takes a sparkler to burn down, which is almost a minute, depending on the sparkler. Here's Natalie Lister from the University of Sydney. She has until her sparkler runs out, after which Sarah Brooker will ask her some questions. Sarah also asked the audience to contribute questions, which the microphone didn't pick up. Fortunately, she immediately repeats them, so you won't miss out. Natalie Lister, come on up to the stage. Natalie is from the University of Sydney, and she's going to be keeping an eye on what you're all eating tonight. Okay, so I have found that the amount that the potassium that's found in fruits and vegetables can actually protect your blood vessels from the known harmful effects of salt in your diet. So we know that reducing your salt to the recommended level could, pro could reduce the number of deaths from cardiovascular diseases by about 2.5 million deaths per year. And, but what we also know is it's really hard to reduce your salt intake. In fact, about 85% of the salt that you eat, you don't see. It's in your food supply. And it's in foods that you wouldn't necessarily think of as salty. So what we have done is shown that the amount of potassium in about two to three bananas can actually protect the way your blood vessels work in response to a high salt meal, which is equivalent to about a large, a large Big Mac meal or a medium Hungry Jack's Whopper meal. <laughs> Oh, well done. So, um, yeah, straight into it. How does the potassium work on the blood vessels? Okay, so the mechanism isn't clearly understood, but what we do know is that by eating a high potassium meal, it increases the amount of potassium that's circulating in your blood. And we also see an increase in the amount of sodium that's circulating in your blood, which is the mineral and salt. So um, we think that for some reason it is actually protecting the way that the blood vessel works and it's probably through the release of nitric oxide, but we've only seen that in animal studies. We haven't seen that in humans yet, so we don't know. Yes. Ah, so what about too much potassium? Is that going to be an issue if you, if you eat three bananas a day so I can have my Big Mac? Will that then affect me later on in life? No, so um, from what we know about potassium is it's really hard to build up. The kidneys are really actually very good at clearing potassium, so it's not built up in your body. The only time that, that there's that bit of a misconception out there is because people who have kidney disease are actually put on a potassium restriction, and that's because their kidneys aren't working properly. So for a normal healthy person, probably shouldn't be recommending that you're eating a Big Mac. It still does other things rather than just giving you salt. But if you're going to have a high salt meal, then we do know that this potassium does protect your, the way your blood vessels work. So when you were researching this, were you looking at, at any impact or were you particularly looking for potassium? Um, well, the intervention that we did was with potassium because we know that potassium is helpful and, and good for our blood vessels. So we were specifically looking at the potassium and we, because we already knew that it was good for our blood vessels, we thought, well, what if it can protect us against what we know is bad, which is the salt? So did you have a clinical trial where people had to eat three bananas a day? Um, we did do that in another trial, but that wasn't in with the salt. So we did that where we just had the high potassium diet and people actually had improvements in their blood pressure and their, and their blood vessel functioning. But in this particular study, we just looked at the way the blood vessels worked, the functioning um, in the presence of high salt after a meal. So it was in that immediate two-hour period after the meal and we were already seeing the benefits of potassium at that Okay, time. so you've got to have your potassium soon after your meal. 
Yeah, well, we haven't tested yet, so that would be okay. next, is to test whether it still has that effect in the long term. So mm -hmm. if you're having a high-salt diet and you have add the potassium, we think that it probably would. It seems to make sense, and, and in population data, people that have high-salt and high-sodium intakes have lower blood heart disease, but we don't know yet. And if I don't like bananas? <laughs> What are my alternatives? <laughs> Pretty much any fruit and vegetable that you could think of has potassium in it. It's just the amount. So avocado, I know that you like avocado. So I had the salad tonight because <laughs> salad with the she told me a story today. So I thought, how could I possibly order anything else? Yep. <laughs> so we have the avocado, which is about, about a cup of mashed avocado is what we used. is the equivalent to about two to three bananas, um, dried apricots, um, the potato skin. So the skin of a potato has lots of potassium in it. So there is a lot of vegetables out there that we could substitute if you don't like bananas. Thank you. Are there any questions out there? At the back, shout it out. The time limit between when you eat the salt and when you eat the bananas. So in this particular study that we did, it was a clinical trial and we gave them um, at the same time in the same meal. So that would be something that we would still need to test is whether there is a time limit. But from the sort of population-based data, if you have a ratio of s sort of salt and potassium at about the same level, it seems to be protective. But we don't know exactly the time limit. I can just see these bananas dipped in salt. <laughs> yeah, so it's like crunchy. if you go to McDonald's, you have to rush out and get some bananas. Straight I don't away. really know how soon you have to have them. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? Thank you very much. That was Natalie Lister from the University of Sydney. A big thank you to Science in Public for permission to broadcast the Bright Spark Challenge. More Bright Sparks in the coming weeks. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends and follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two NVR in Nambaka Valley, two X in Canberra, and three NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are indexed by keywords, so you can easily find the subjects you'd like to focus on. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.